The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Thicker than I remember. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Third Men Podcast. We are still on summer break, but I'm your usual co-host, Paul Kaminsky. James Kaminsky would have loved to have been with us on today's intro, but he's busy raising a family. That's right. Brand new baby is in the mix for young Master James. We're very excited for him, and we're also very excited for this episode today. It's the second in our series of best of episodes covering all of season three of the third men podcast last week we covered our best of album reviews where we played back for you all of the different reviews we've given to various jack white albums that we have reviewed over the years and that was a whole lot of fun and today we all splash fight splash fight those silly gooses Today, we're back with a Best of Extended Interviews, Part 1 for Season 3. We had so many interviews in Season 3 that we had to divide this one up over the course of two, so get ready for some good ones this week. We've got interviews with the mighty Comalina, who was, of course, a dirt bomb, accomplished musician in her own right, member of a million bands, used to work for the White Stripes, took a bunch of pictures for the band, including the picture used on their first album cover. We've also got for you today a segment of our interview with Johnny Walker, or Dr. Walker, as he's known in medical circles. Uh, Johnny Walker, of course, one half of the Soledad brothers and a uh, oft-Jack collaborator. We're also bringing to you today our interview with Brandy St. John, stylist for Jack through a variety of projects over the years, including all oh, those icky thump pearly suits, dead weather outfits, solo tour stuff, white stripes, rack and tours, 
Dead Weather, Solo. She is styled it all. And uh, lastly, we're going to wrap up with our interview with Howlin' brother Jared Green, who joined us to talk a little bit about working on Brendan Benson's record label. And, of course, his band, Howlin' Brothers, is a whole lot of fun. We had a blast talking to Jared. So, hey, sit back, enjoy this look back at our Season 3 Interviews Part 1. Next episode, we're going to be back with some more of those, including the two interviews we conducted with Ben Blackwell. We got Pat Pantano coming at you next week, Emmett Malloy, lots of good stuff. So thank you again for joining us. And I'm going to get back to the pool over here, guys. like to welcome our third person this week, Ko Molina. Yay, hi! Ko? <laughs> Hello! Uh, hi, how are you guys? Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, we finally got it together. Thanks for uh, having me. <laughs> yeah, thank you for coming on. We've been slowly collecting Dirt Bombs members uh, <laughs> along the way, one by one, and, and we're finally got in touch with you. It's, it's exciting to have you on the show. Thank you. It's exciting to be on your show. I can guarantee you that... <laughs> The hardest person that you guys are going to have to get on the show is going to be Mick. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so we actually got him. You did? Yeah. We no. got Mick, and I will give you the two-second explanation. Okay. We were trying to get a hold of him for months. Yeah. And he kept saying, like, yeah, great. Mm-hmm. And then it never happened. Mm-hmm. And then one night we were on the line with a huge Dirt Bombs fan, a listener of ours named Kate McCoy, and Uh I tweeted at him one last time, Mick, we're talking about the Dirt Bombs, you should join us, and he happened to be online, and he was like, give me a number. No So I tweeted my phone number (laughs) at him, and we wound up having this talk about bowling. It was awesome. (laughs) Oh my god. I was gonna say, like, Mick is like the hardest person to get a hold of. I'm so amazed. (laughs) (laughs) We were too. It was a highlight of that night. Speaking of getting a hold of people, you are one of these figures that we have been, like, since we started doing this podcast and we've been learning more and more about the key players in, you know, Detroit music, yours was, like, one of the very first names we ran into and kept running into over and over and over again. (laughs) So I feel like we've been uncovering a little more about you every episode that we've done and now you're here on the show and i gotta tell you it's pretty weird for me to be talking to you because you've been like built up to be this figure and now here you are oh my gosh <laughs> i feel like I, I feel weird now <laughs> what paul's trying to say is live up to our expectations he's, he's oh, really no. he's trying oh, no. <laughs> now, this show's gonna be a complete disappointment for you guys <laughs> We, we do aim to make our guests feel extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, we're shock jocks. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Let's just get right in here. There's a burning question we have. Okay. And it's right. right at the top here, and you can solve it for us once and for all. Okay. What is, like, the name that you prefer to go by? Because there's so many... Oh gosh, yeah. That, ...different it, it, iterations that we've run into. We've heard just Co. Yeah. We've heard Comalina. Yeah. We've heard Comalita Zydeco, or I think I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. Koshi. What? Okay. What? My my full my my legal name. Yeah. Like that appears on like my driver's license and everything, 
is Ko Chen Shi. Okay. Okay. And it gets a little weird because with my family, mm-hmm. how do I explain this? Like, obviously, my family, like my last name, is Shi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in my family, there's a generational name, which is Ko. Okay. So, like, my sister, her name is also Ko, but her name name, like my name name, would be Chen. And her name is Anne. And, like, my cousins, they all have, like, the first, you know, the generation name as Ko. Right. And then their name is in the middle. You know what I mean? Gotcha. Right, right, right. So, growing up, it's, it was kind of weird because we all were born in America. And all the teachers are all like, oh, you're all just Ko's. Because they just assume that's your first name. Mm-hmm. Right. And somewhere along the line, I don't even remember how or when this happened, but somewhere along the line, I got the name Comalina. Hmm. Comalina Zydeco, I got that name. And I dropped the Zydeco because I didn't really know anything about Zydeco music, and I don't know how th- I don't know how that name came about. I was going to say, so- I haven't heard anything with your name attached to it that has been Cajun or Louisianan in feel. Yeah, exactly. So I just ended up using Comalina just to like differentiate myself from everybody else, because my sister, she just goes by like Co-She. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? She doesn't mm-hmm. go by Anne. I don't know. I guess it's easier for, like, Americans <laughs> to use Co. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I usually go by Comalina or just Co, you know? That is way more involved than I thought. Like, I, 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 <laughs> I guess I didn't know where all the names were coming from, but that makes perfect sense to me. And I guess it just goes to show you how lazy Americans are. <laughs> yeah. I bought a van. Mm-hmm. Nice. Just because I was like, eh, might as well buy a van too. I knew a guy. <laughs> well, this is funny because I knew a guy who worked for this company that they converted vans into handicap vans, uh-huh. handicap yeah. shuttles. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. guess right, there's right. you know so there's some sort of Michigan law or whatever that you can only use those vans for a certain amount of miles or whatever. Blah blah blah. And then you have to get new ones or whatever. Right. So he would trade them into the dealership and get new ones, or his, his the company he worked for would do that and get a certain amount of money back for him, and then buy a new one. And then he started meeting all these people in bands and realized that he could make more money by selling them to people in bands, uh-huh. you know, and then get give the money to the dealerships and buy a new van, you know. <laughs> Because the trade-in value wasn't that much, you know? So I got this van, which was like a 15-passenger van, with this big, huge... It was like... It had an extended cab on top. Yeah. And it had, like, a wheelchair lift in the back. Sure. And it had, like, seventy or 80,000 miles on it. And a Econoline 350 or something. Yeah. You know, and he was like, I don't know, give me, like... $2,000. And I was like, hell yeah, you know? And he was like, well, because if I trade it in at the dealership, they'll only give me $1,000. So I'm like, all right, mm. awesome. So this guy's side hustle was giving every single band in Detroit a van to drive in. <laughs> mm-hmm. So at some point in 1999 to 2003, this guy had a, a van empire, and the United States <laughs> was filled with Detroit bands just shuttling yeah. back and forth, and also possibly picking up wheelchairs. We don't really know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how many people actually bought vans from him, because I know I did. I think the Von Bondies might have. No, I know the Von Bondies did. Okay. 
the doll rods? I don't know. I'm not sure who else did. I know that Tom Potter already had a van. Of course he did. Um, <laughs> the White Stripes already had a van. Tom uh, Potter had a van for many reasons. Yeah. We don't know all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How many of these van owners were using it to shuttle kids from the high school to the bar? <laughs> How many of them were Iraqis? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing that ended up being good for me was that I was able to actually rent out my van to other bands <laughs> when I <laughs> when I wasn't on tour. <laughs> so you had a side hustle. I always had a side hustle. <laughs> this is a van pyramid scheme. But yeah, so I bought this van. The only thing I had to do was uh, I had my friend uh, Chris Turner, who's this really great artist here. Paint a wizard on it. Please paint a wizard on it. <laughs> no. <laughs> I wish he did. But he came over. He, he has a welding set up. And he came and he took the wheelchair thing out of it because it was like this one, you know, it was like an actual machine, you know, where it was like you push the yeah. button and it was... And it weighed, like, so much. It was so heavy. Like, at first we're like, oh, this might be cool, then we won't have to lift all the equipment. But it's a pain in the ass, you know? Like, it was mm. t- yeah. totally not worth it. So he just had to, like, take it out of my van, and I built, like, a little loft Ooh. in it. So you could, like, sleep in the van if you wanted to, and also so the uh, equipment would be more secure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which was really funny because that van actually ended up getting stolen. <laughs> oh, God. Whoa. Yeah. With equipment or were you able to save that? All the equipment was out of it except for Ben Blackwell's drum set. Good. Oh, God. <laughs> no. we, had lo- we had loaded everything out of the, the van except for Ben was like, I'll just come get my drum set tomorrow. Oh. And, and the funny thing was about it was that I didn't actually know that the van was stolen for like three days. Because I just thought that Ben had taken the van to unload his drum set. So I was like, all right, well, van's gone. Ben must have taken it. And then um, Ben, like... Not our sweet baby boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and everybody in the band had keys to the van. So I was mm-hmm. just like, oh, Ben just came and took it. So three days later, Ben's like, can I come get my drum set? And I'm like, what, you don't have the van? And he's like, no. <laughs> I was like, oh, crap. You know, so then I had to call everybody in the van, and the band was like, anybody take the van? Everyone's like, nope. I love Detroit so So then much. I had to file a police report, and the great part about it was they give you, like, 90 days, the cops, like, 90 mm-hmm. days or whatever, to see, to see if they can find the van. Uh-huh. And, of course, they never found the van. And so, like, 90 days later, the insurance company calls me, and they're like, all right, well, they never found the van, so you got to come in, and we'll cut you a check for the van. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess, you know, I'm going to get a check for like $500 or something. You know what I mean? And I go to the insurance place. They're writing out the check. And they're like, one, zero, 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 zero. And I'm like, what? And they cut me a check for $10,000. Oh, my God. And I was like, what do I do here? Do I say, like, is this too much? Because I don't want to, like owe them money, you know, when they figure out it's wrong. But at the same time, I don't want to, like, turn down $9,000, potentially, (laughs) that I think that this van is whatever. And so I actually said to the guy, I'm like, are you sure this is right? And he's like, yeah, the motor in it, the engines in it is worth blah, 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 because it's an E350 or whatever, blah, blah, blah. So this van was worth $10,000. Here's your check. And that's like, holy sh**. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so yeah. So long story short, you bought a fleet of vans. 
and a fleet of drum kits that you just shipped off to Ben. So Ben Blackle got really lucky. No. Yeah. But yeah, I bought this van. I ended up uh, doing a little bit of touring with Cohen the Knockouts. Like we did a tour with Holly Go Lightly, a couple tours with Holly Go Lightly. Yeah. The first tour we did, we went down to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, we played New Orleans and Memphis. Uh-huh. I don't remember how we got this show, but we stayed with Peg from the Gories. Mm hmm. And we mm-hmm. played a couple shows down in New Orleans for Mardi Gras. And I remember Eddie was 20 at the time. Ooh. And I was like, oh, man, this really sucks, dude. Like, it's Mardi yeah. Gras, you're 20. Or you might have been 19. And we got to figure something out. So this is where, this is me being super illegal. <laughs> <laughs> At that point in time, Michigan had these really shitty driver's licenses that were just like a piece of paper laminated with a picture, uh-huh. you know, your picture on it. Good, yeah. And if you ran your finger over it, you could feel like an imprint of like the state of Michigan. But it was mm-hmm. like the feeling of it was like the size of a dime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And only if you looked at it would you see that it was like the seal of Michigan or whatever. And I was like, well, if we're only going go to go to bars at night, hmm. Yeah. And we're going to New Orleans, hmm. So I was like, Eddie, give me your license, you know. So I like I made Eddie a fake ID. <laughs> <laughs> and to make it kind of like so it would feel like it was legit while the uh lamination was still wet, I pressed a bunch of dimes into it so it would feel like that was like there's a you know like you could feel like Yeah. There's something there. It vaguely feels like Roosevelt, but yeah. there's something there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it to- it actually totally worked. I and you know I was I, t- I told him I was like, the only reason I'm making you this is because I don't want you to like have to like you know like Ben Blackwell like when we would do the dirt bomb stuff. There's certain venues in Seattle where they would make him sit out in the van oh, until we played the show. <laughs> poor Ben, and then somebody drove off with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so I felt bad for him, so I was like, you can't ever use this. Except for the Sparty Gras trip, you know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> one of Roosevelt's defining characteristics was that his head was shaped like a mitten. So <laughs> it's, it's very yeah. good. Oh, man. Holy cow. Wow. All, all, all these terrible things I did when I was young. <laughs> <laughs> all of these terrible things that other people did, Cope. Yeah, not me. Not me. Somebody yeah, no. else did that. <laughs> this is a legend. Tomorrow's going to be my 15-year anniversary of being in the Dirt Bombs. Oh, wow. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Yay. Uh, um, I think that's older than Blackwell when he joined. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story about that in a second. But um, Okay. Yeah, so for like being in the Dirt Bombs for 15 years, Pat and I never really talked about photography because I think we really came from a different point of view. You know, I never really looked at photography as artistic even though I did take photos, you know, of the white stripes and photos, you know, and they were used in an artistic manner, mm, I always took yeah. photos more as life as it's happening. You know what I mean? Does right, candidates and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Which is more interesting to me in most cases than, you know, still stagnant art. Yeah. Like setups, like still lives. I always really, really admired what everybody else could do in terms of photography. You know, like Steve Shaw, he's a great photographer. Pat's a great photographer. I really admire what they can do. But I can't do that, and I can't. I don't see things that way. At one point, I picked up like an old eight millimeter film camera. It actually worked. I had a bunch of land cameras, 
and I was able to find film for those. And so I would run around and take photos with that thing. Do you have any Super 8 footage of the knockouts rolling around there? No, because (laughs) I would take Super 8 footage of other bands, Mm. footage of like the White Stripes and like the Greenhorns. And then I have some footage of just like hanging out. I think it was like Meg's birthday or something, you know, (laughs) stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I just always kind of did it for like, oh, this is just kind of fun and just document what's going on rather than like trying to shoot it from an artistic point of view. Yeah. That makes sense. It's funny you mentioned that about the slice of life style photos that you liked to take, because even though those photos on the front cover of the Stripes albums appear to be staged, they have an atmosphere about them that seems very, oh, I turned around the corner and boom, there they were. And I took this kind of thing. I don't know how you uh, caught that or if it was a conscious choice even, but, uh, It has that vibe, you know? Those pictures, actually, Jack definitely was like, all right, this is what I want the photos. You know, he was like, we're we're taking the photos here. And he had known that, you know, I had dabbled in photography. Mm. And so he asked me if I would take the photos for him. And I was like, okay, sure, why not? Yeah. So he and Meg just kind of stood there. And I, you know, I shot like probably like an entire roll of photos of them standing there from different angles. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so in one sense, they are staged. Yeah. But he's the one who did the staging. He's the one who said, like, right, I'm going to stand right. here, Meg's standing here, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I took the photos in terms of, like, okay, well, I'm going to try from this angle, this angle, this angle, this angle, this angle. It was up to you to find some life in them. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> was there any uh, striking differences between a shoot like that and something, like, because Pat Pantano did the photography for the Knockouts album cover. Yes. Pat totally just told us what to do the entire time. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is, I didn't realize until, you know, when I joined the come-ons, we had to do a bunch of photos for the first single. And E-Wolf, Pat and Deanne had asked him to take photos. And mm-hmm. E-Wolf, he did, I, I think, for a job for a while, he was a portrait photographer. Mm. Yeah. And so when we sat down for him, he said to me, he was like, all right, Co, everybody has a good side. And you have to, like, make sure that you lift your head like this, your chin like this. And, you know, this and this and this and, like, kind of taught me how to, like, pose for photos. (laughs) (laughs) Which sounds really weird. And it was, like, the first time I'd really done, like, posed photos or whatever before. And so I just, from then on, I just did that. Whenever anybody, anybody would take pictures of me, I'd just be like, okay... Here's my good side, and this, and this, and this, and this, you know? Right. <laughs> and so I'm, I, I'm always very conscious of that. And it's funny because later on, <laughs> we did like a tour with Kelly Stoltz, and those guys would always make fun of me because when you see pictures of me standing with the band, I always kind of have the same stance where I have like my toes like yeah <laughs> like you know like <laughs> yeah, pointed pointing inwards yeah, 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 and no, like no, my exactly. head's tilted because that's like my good like that's a good I don't know that's like kind of what evil had said like this is your good side this is like the way you should stand so I always stand like that no matter what you know <laughs> another mystery solved here on the program <laughs> I always stand like that. And it's it's really funny because, yeah, the guys in the Kelly Stoltz band would always make fun of me. They'd be like, this is the co-stance. This is how co-stands, you know. And it's totally true. Out. I always stand like that. I know exactly what you're talking about. I, <laughs> we did a Dirt Bomb show, and I was looking for photos to post uh, in the Facebook group. And everyone, everyone I was like, oh, 
There she is. I was beginning to think perhaps you were a cardboard cutout. <laughs> no, yeah. Every single photo, I'm like, all right, E-Wolf says to stand like this, and that's my good side, and that's where I'm going to look nice. Yeah. You know, and it's... it's. Uh, it is a very rock star stance, though, i got to say. Yeah. It's very rock star. Thanks. <laughs> I wish I had a rock star stance. I don't have any... I, I'm in a constant state of schlub. Well, you know, it's not hard to get a rock star stance. You just got to have somebody teach it to you. Mm. <laughs> you got to make the schlub work for you, Paul. Co, today, live on the show, you're teaching us both how to rock star stance. <laughs> <laughs> the number one cardinal rule of tour buses and it's like a rule that everybody knows you know there's bathrooms on tour buses but you cannot <laughs> go number two on a tour bus <laughs> okay you cannot do it it makes sense um, it makes sense yeah you can't do it yeah. i mean because the guy who drives the tour bus i mean it it has to i think it has to do with the fact that like <laughs> You know, and they dump the waste, blah, 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 blah. And the band gets fined, all this stuff. And I kind of assumed, you know, we all knew this rule. And I kind of assumed that it was unsaid because it's just one of those things. Everybody knows you don't go number two on a tour bus. And we were sitting in the tour bus that was parked right in the back of this hotel. So we're all hanging out with TV on the radio on our tour bus. And, like, we were watching, I don't know, The Muppet Show or something on, you know... (laughs) You know, I mean, Fozzie's humor always gets me a little. You know. Yeah, I mean, those guys are great. The Muppets. Uh, yeah. 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 Love the Muppets. Yeah, it was either the Muppets or Sesame Street, something like that. It was really, uh, you know, they're a very interesting crew. To digress a little bit, like Tunde, the lead singer, you know, like before he was doing TV on the radio, he was like the lead animator on uh, MTV Celebrity Deathmatch. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was like, what? You know what I mean? Like, But he's like like the most like kind, thoughtful guy. And I was like, how did you spend years and years animating, you know, like grotesque, like (laughs) horrible stuff? And he was like, yeah. It got to be really horrible after a while. (laughs) Anyway. That's great, Johnny. Yeah, so we're just, like, hanging out with those guys and blah, blah, blah. And Mick's like, oh, I've got to use the bathroom. So we all just figure he's going to go in the bathroom and take a piss. Mm -hmm. Especially because the hotel is, you know, maybe 200 feet away or whatever. Yeah. And we're just talking, blah, 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 watching the Muppet Show. I think it's me and Ben and Kip. And we just keep talking and... Some time goes by, and all of a sudden we're like, wait a minute, it's been a long time. <laughs> and then we realize it smells kind of bad, and we realize that Mick has done the cardinal sin of taking a crap on the tour bus. <laughs> and we're like, oh! Oh my god like you know we're in our second or third day on tour with these guys and he's taking a crap on their tour bus you know and and you know and it's a big fine for them yeah so we're just like oh what do we do you know what i mean no, nothing you can do at that point yeah i mean I, i've heard of other bands where they're like when they say like okay if you really got to take a crap and you can't pull over you know you like put a garbage bag in the toilet uh-huh. And then you crap in the garbage bag, and then you tie it up, and then throw it away later, you know? But no, he didn't do that, you know? And, you know, and our whole thing was like, 
Why didn't you just go into the hotel? The hotel was right there. It wasn't like, you know, we were moving. You know? With much better facilities, as I'm assuming. <laughs> exactly! Uh. It wasn't like we were moving. It wasn't like we were in the middle of nowhere. You know, so, we were, uh, yeah, it was a pretty horrible thing. We were like, oh, God, we're going to get kicked off this tour, and we're going to get find all this money. Oh, <laughs> uh. Uh, so we'd like to welcome back to the program Komalina. <laughs> potty mouth. Potty, potty mouth. Toilet tales on the road. Toilet tales of touring. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> oh, now there's something that needs a claymation uh, show. Toilet tales of touring. I like it. You touched on this earlier, and I gotta ask... How did you go about doing merch for the Stripes? Because that must have been pretty early in the process, and I'm sort of unfamiliar with how that would have worked and when you were actually doing that. Would you be able to go into that a little bit? I was living with Meg at that time. Oh, okay. And um, I was bartending at the Garden Bowl, and they had just gotten really big. And I think Ben was doing merch for them sometimes. And then, like, mm-hmm. the Dirt Bombs would go on tour, and I w- obviously wasn't in the band yet. And so I think she and Jack, maybe, I don't I don't really know how it came about, but they said, like, how about you come out and do merch with, for us? So I did merch for them for a little bit, and it kind of blew me away. I mean, it was a fun job because it was like bartending. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right. Except instead of making drinks, I'm throwing out t-shirts and you know and um and records and stuff like that and i think that the the last i'm trying to remember what year it might have been it it was right before the euro came in okay because i remember that we had to go like it it was a big pain in the ass when we were in like in europe Mm -hmm. having all these different kinds of money and me being like You know, I don't know what this is and and trying to figure out like conversion rates every day and this and that. But yeah, it was it was pretty fun. It was uh, it was a good time. Had you seen the band prior to that? Do you recall seeing them for a first time or perform, that is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Any impressions on the band themselves at that stage? Uh, Well, it was weird because, you know, I'd seen them play when they were like playing at the Gold Dollar. And I always thought that Jack had a really great way of commanding, like, such a small audience because he was able to, like, make you feel like he was talking to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that it was really, really, really incredible. Nothing 
obviously it's been able to translate into larger audiences. Sure. You know, which is pretty amazing. I mean, I, I, you know, I never really thought about like, wow, will this be able to work when they get big? Because I never really, you know, I never, you never think like, oh, my friends are going to be huge. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) you hope for that. But yeah, I always thought like, man, he's a great storyteller. He's a really great. Sure. He has a really great way of like projecting towards a group of people and making them feel like he's talking directly or singing directly to these people. Right. And, Mm -hmm. uh. You know, I haven't seen any of his projects outside the White Stripes, so I don't really know what uh, what that's like. You were living with Meg at the time. Did you ever detect that Meg was nervous? Like, can I do this? Or was she like full bore, I'm in it kind of thing? Did it ever feel tentative with her? Because sometimes, you know, Jack can be such a domineering figure. You know, it's you get the impression with Meg would perhaps be taking a back seat. Did you ever get that impression or was it more like, no, I'm in it. I'm dedicated. I'm doing this. That's a hard question for me to answer. I don't really necessarily know how to answer that, but I, 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 but I, I'll I'll just answer that by saying that Meg, Meg is a lot stronger of a woman than people will give her credit for. Um, obviously, you know, a lot of people, especially when the White Stripes were first starting out, they said, like, oh, she can't play drums and this and that and this and that. And, you know, she got a lot of slack. And she handled it like no one I've I've ever met, you know. Mm -hmm. And she's a strong person. She's wonderful, you know. Yeah. Agreed. We all think that, absolutely. that talked about, I think Meg had said something along the lines of, because there were just the two of them, and I think she said, I can usually keep him where I want him, like musically, mm-hmm. with the drums. And I thought, for somebody who wasn't a drummer and who wasn't a musician, mm-hmm. I just thought that was pretty powerful. And I think I think that too. I think she always, I played the drums, not well, but I played the drums. And it's definitely, you know, people say like, who's your favorite drummer? And I'll say Meg White. People will be like, it's half and half. Some people will give her crap, and I just think, well, they just don't really know. Yeah. You know, they yeah. just don't know. And she gave me one, one some of the best advice I've ever heard, ever. When I first started doing my radio show, I obviously would, you know, read blogs, and people would say, like, you're doing great, you're doing terrible, blah, 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 blah. Obviously, when I first started, there was a lot of amateur, you know? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Why, why did little Steven hire this person? I don't know who, even who she is. And it really bummed me out. Like, I really had a hard time with it. And she sat down with me and she said, well, 
the thing is, when you read good stuff about you, it doesn't really make you feel that much better. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And when you read bad stuff about you, it makes you feel terrible. So just don't read any of it. Yeah. You know? Right. And that is good. Yeah. Yeah. That is good advice. There are still people out there who say Ringo Starr can't play drums. So, I mean, obviously there's idiots with opinions everywhere. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And Ringo Starr, I mean, one of the best things I ever heard about Ringo Starr was when they were talking about him. Like, uh, I think it was in, like the first time when the Beatles were playing like Shea Stadium or something. And he was talking about how back then they didn't have like monitors or anything. And he was mm-hmm. like, yeah, I couldn't hear any of those guys. I just sat back there and just played and just hoped that I was on time, you know? And it's just like, right. yeah, dude, Ringo Starr. So we've got a special lightning round prepared here. Oh, no. So we're going to do a couple to close things out. And again, we, we thank you so much for joining us once more. This has been amazing. And we have a bunch of rapid fire questions we're going to throw at you. And you give us like, boom, boom, boom. You know what I mean? And if you don't like it, you just tell us pass. Pass. Okay. All right. right. So we got lightning round here. We'll just go boom, boom, boom. Okay. First question. Who would win in a fight? The E Street Band or the Dirt Bombs? Ooh. uh, E Street Band. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Bruce is from New Jersey. He could could do a a mean... (laughs) A mean sucker punch. Yeah, even though the Dirt Bombs are from Detroit, I gotta say the E Street Band. All right. Okay. You have one album by one group to take with you on a desert island. What is it? Can't we go by genre? Can we go... (laughs) uh, That's too hard. Um, Okay. Uh, We'll go with two two genres. Rock and roll. um, Do we get decades? See, the problem is, is with me, I get stuck on a certain record, and I listen to that record for like three months straight, and then I get sick of it, and I never want to hear it again. (laughs) Okay, 80s McCartney albums. Which ones do you pick? (laughs) Please say Pipes of Peace. Okay, yes, yes. Okay, Okay, Pipes of Peace is going with Koto Desert Island. (laughs) (laughs) All right, have you ever played a keytar? No. I want to, though. Ah. Okay. You're keytar curious. I got it. All right. Yeah. And that's yeah. that's going with you to the desert island. <laughs> <laughs> so it's freshman year of high school, and you're listening to one album on repeat. What is it? Oh, the, um, the jam in the city. Nice. Nice. If you had to send one fellow musician to Interlochen Music Camp, whether it be as punishment or training, who would it be? Mick Collins. <laughs> 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 Excellent. What is your favorite diner in Detroit? Oh, Lafayette. No, Nemo's. 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 No. Okay. <laughs> can you get a genre? <laughs> you can do top three. <laughs> I'll say Lafayette. Okay. And what should we get there? Coney Island, dude. Okay. All okay. right. I figured, but all right. Uh, and uh, what's one nickname you gave somebody else that they hated? Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, these are kind of nicknames people don't know about. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> the best kind. The well, close. Did you talker. did you uh, did you name Mick Collins guy who shat on the bus? <laughs> <laughs> no. 
Okay, well, I don't know if he knows. We actually didn't come up with us this. We were touring with uh, that band, The Terrible Twos, and they started calling Troy Gargamel. <laughs> <laughs> was it because he had a bloodlust for Smurfs? Yeah, Gargamel from the Smurfs. <laughs> he was always chasing those little blue creatures. He was, <laughs> and then we started like we would like take pictures of Troy and put them next to pictures of Gargamel. <laughs> oh my god! And then text oh my god, them we're to breaking each other. we're breaking news here on the Third Men podcast. Uh, and if we get Troy on the show, uh, we are. <laughs> Letting him know. But then, of course, when we started doing that tour with TV on the radio, those guys, man, they did some really hilarious stuff. Like Tunde, you know, he's the singer. He doesn't play guitar or anything. People try to sell all sorts of stupid shit on eBay. Yeah. And people would come up to him with guitar, like pick guards and stuff, and be like, oh, will you sign this? And it's like, he doesn't play guitar. You know that he's gonna, they're just going to put that on eBay. So he would start doing stuff like... Like drawing like clansmen and writing like Tunde oh TV on the radio, you know. Like, no. <laughs> oh my god! You know, because he was just like, "You're not putting this on eBay," you know what I mean? I'm not, you know, like if you're a fan, cool. <laughs> but if you're you're giving me a guitar, you know, like I don't play guitar in the band, dude. <laughs> We'd like to welcome our, our special <laughs> guest today from the All Seeing Eyes and many other bands, including but not limited to uh, Soledad Brothers, Henry and Jude. Like, you're all over the place. We have Johnny Walker. Johnny! Yeah. yeah. How's it going? It's, it's going well, thank you. Johnny, can you believe you're here? With you, I know, it's unbelievable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know, our reputation has preceded us so much. We are thrilled to talk to you today. Like, we've just, we love your music, and we've been learning, like, over the course of this podcast, we've been doing this deep dive into the Detroit music world, and your name is just all over that stuff. Like, if the Detroit music world was a waffle, you are the syrup everywhere. Oh, yeah, that's thick. (laughs) You're sticking to everything, Johnny. You're sticking to everything. But you're making it sweeter. You're making it much sweeter. I try. I try. You know. The last time uh, we we were communicating, you were fighting off some wasps' nests on a roof. So. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Did you win, Johnny? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I did. I, I, I excuse you. Go out at uh, dusk, and uh, they can't see after dark. So that's when you want to. That's when you want to get them. You know. You just kind of let them go until the evening, and then you that's you go back again. Wow! It it seems (laughs) it's not like they're clever or anything. (laughs) But it seems to me that you would have difficulty seeing as well. So I feel like that's a dangerous game. I I have the benefit of a flashlight. Okay, and I'll hit I hit I hit the the flashlight on the wasp nest, and um, and I'll just get them, and then. After I'm done, like, I just cut the light off immediately because they're totally blinded by that light, and they can't see in the dark, so... Okay. um, 
So that you, yeah. it's like the Motara Nebula, where you both can't detect each other's sensors. The worst, the worst part about it is I was on the scaffold, so I was like, you know, about 40 feet up in the air, and um, there's nowhere to go if I screw it up. It's, it's pretty hard to screw up. One so, shot. Yeah, well, yeah, but, I mean, you can cut the light off anytime you want, and they won't be able to find you. So. <laughs> You got yeah. that going for you, but then you're in the dark on a scaffold, forty feet up in the air. And that's a whole other story. So covered in wasps, mind you. No, no, they, they won't <laughs> find you. They won't find you in the dark. They're, they're blind as can be in the dark. They, you know, oh, they won't find you. Well, this is the riveting stuff our listeners yeah, have right? have been craving. Right. Yeah, let's say we jump into the music because I know uh, I know it's getting okay. pretty pretty late. I know um, murdering insects is also sweet, sweet music in and of itself. <laughs> if you're going to have a nemesis, it might as well be a wasp. Yeah. <laughs> you don't feel guilty if you kill it, you know? It's like, oh, this thing's just evil. Yeah, they definitely are. And not to get into a tangent about wasps back again, but a giant, a giant hornet. I, th- I think I texted you a picture, or I sent you a picture of it. A giant hornet, like, four inches long was in my house that very night, and I had to go and find where this hornet had come from. Yeah, yeah. It's giant. Right beside right your thumb. thumb. Yeah, my God. <laughs> That's scary. Yeah, that was in my house. I uh, did not care for that. But- and they're aggressive. They're aggressive, too. They're, oh they're, they're like, yeah, they're really chasing you around. I thought it was a small bird. I came into the room. I was like, (laughs) 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 well, uh, let's, let's get into some, some of the nitty gritty here. Um, so you were, you were in a band called the Soledad brothers. Yeah, it was. It's true. It's true. They are amazing. You guys were amazing. Oh, thanks. And you've been in in, many, many. We're working on some new material too. So are you really? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Can, yeah, can we get the scoop I, on that? Well, Ben and I worked on some stuff, and I think we had like four songs that we had worked out. You know, nice. So many lyrics, you know, so many arrangement, whatever. Just we were worked on some stuff. So you're nice writing, or have you been in the basement? Oh, okay. See, I was just going to ask, where are you? Just are you writing the material, or are you already in the studio, laying some yeah, stuff yeah, down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, we're not in the studio yet. And I, my um, band that I play with regularly, the All Sea Guys, we um, have LP that's probably going to be a month here. So, wow, awesome. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty happy about, about that. That's like that was quite an accomplishment. So, well, you're keeping busy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like what I do for fun, and then you know, I get this crazy house I'm working on, and then. You know, working during the day at the clinics, so nice. um, I stay busy. Yeah. So you were in a band with Ben Swank called the Soledad Brothers. Uh-huh. Whose idea was it to create this this band? Was it yours? Was it Ben's? Well, well ben, ben and I had played in Henry and June. We kind of appreciated the a similar aesthetic, and you know, we lived in the same town. So I was in a band called Johnny Walker with my best friend Doug Walker, and we were a two piece band. His last name was Walker, and my first name was Johnny, so we called the band Johnny Walker. And then when we went, that band would break up because we were like brothers, and we'd get in like you know fist fights, and you know, oh, geez. it was just it was just it was, yeah, it was very volatile band. And he was like you know best friend, you know sort yeah. of deal. So 
Anyhow, uh, yeah, like we, it was very well with Tyler. <laughs> yeah, he, he was a fun guy to hang out with. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Yeah, 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 totally. But, um, I mean, we laugh, we laugh about it all and shrug it off and go get a beer, you know. Yeah. But, um, anyhow, uh, that band broke up and Ben and I, yes, we had been in Henry and June together. So we decided that we were just going to start another band. And one of my favorite John Lee Hooker records is Live at Soledad Penitentiary. And then, of course, from there, I started reading about um, the revolutionary movement that was going on based out of Soledad Penitentiary. And John Lee Hooker's record, like, I mean, that record boogies so damn hard, you know? Mm. <laughs> Such a great record. So we called the band Soledad Brothers. And. The rest is history. I guess. What is it? A, what is it about the the chemistry with Ben that keeps it interesting over all that time? Because oh, like, uh, because we neither one of us know what the hell we're doing. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, uh, and and, and we're, but either either one of us were like open to suggestions. Like I could like go to the microphone and beatbox. Ben would follow along with it. Yeah, you know, like, like I mean, we're like that stupid. stupid. Like, like really, really, like it's it's uh, it's just dumb sometimes. Like watching us work together, it's, you know, like two monkeys football. I am loving the metaphors in this. <laughs> so you kind of like inspire each other in like a like a haphazard way, like. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We're yeah. <laughs> You mean, yeah. uh, I've put Ben up to doing some really dumb shit. And I've seen him like, do some really, really ridiculous stuff. I mean, he's he's a wild man. He's mellowed out quite a bit. He's mellowed out quite a bit. No, he's bad, but. <laughs> um, yeah. He had no choice, actually. He had, he had to mellow out of there just because he was out of control. Um, <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's crazy. He's a wild man. You know, like. Holy cow. I used to watch him dive downstairs. We got, yeah, never mind. I'm not telling any stories. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get him in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> you guys used to play a lot of different places, especially like the Gold Dollar seemed to be a oh, pretty, yeah. pretty frequent haunt for you guys. Do you have any, yeah. any good memories of the club? Um, I it, The thing that I liked about it, that, that like, made me realize it was kind of a special place was the fact that when you uh, watched a band when the bands were playing people would sit on the bar yeah, yeah. and watch the band you know like I thought that was really cool I was like I was like, wow, I've never seen a place that'll just like let you sit on the bar you know <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying like yeah that's, no that's, yeah Cause... that's awesome yeah, you know, it's like it was, it was a little tiny place, and it was just gr- it was gross. I mean, let's face it. And then the other thing that was crazy about it was like it was before like the you know the Renaissance and the Cash Corridor right now, and uh, like it's it's not called the Cash Corridor anymore. It's called like Midtown or some yeah, bullshit. something like that. Some rebranded bullcrap. But anyways, um, before when the you know it was so bad that they had cameras all over the parking lots and the guy working the door had like eight monitors. I mean, <laughs> like the 90s, that was like yeah, some yeah. serious business, you know? <laughs> like nine <laughs> monitors in, in here. And they were like big monitors. They were like TV screens. Like, <laughs> the front door, like, like, like nine TV screens. 
<laughs> but yeah, it was necessary though because it was like uh, it was the kind of neighborhood where you had to call before you left so that people were looking out for you. Oh my god! Uh, you know, yeah, that kind of sort of thing. You know, and like when you get to some place, you call back home and make sure everybody knows that you got there. Okay, that sort of yeah, deal. You know, it's... like uh, it's it was a pretty rough neighborhood. You know, now it's like uh, it's crazy. It, like there's parking meters. And shit. I don't know. I'm, I don't, I'm not too down with it, but you know, whatever. Yeah. Every, every place has. If, if if like some of those old buildings get fixed up because of it, then I guess it's worth it. But the problem is, they just drive all the poor folks out that have lived in that neighborhood for like right, you know, right. generations. So yeah, similar things are happening in Philadelphia, close oh, by I'm me. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Town. Sure. Do you guys? Do you guys ever like hang out with those low cut comedy boys? No. Oh man, they're so cool. They're from Philadelphia. Oh, I thought maybe you might know. I should get to know them though. Yeah, they're good. They're good dudes, and uh, they're like pretty um, talented guys. And uh, I've done some recording with them lately. Uh, they just recorded uh, at Ardent Studios. And, oh yeah, and nice. Memphis. And they, yeah, they like invited me to come there twice to them. I'm recording. They uh, also invited me to come down and record down at Fame Studios, which is pretty, pretty amazing experience. Yeah. So, uh, down at Muscle Shoals, you know. So, uh, but yeah, that Low Cut County band is seriously like legitimately talented guys, you know, and super, super high energy kind of rock and roll stuff, you know. That's great. They, That's great. They, I knew they were like kind of special when I saw them like unload their gear and they would like haul like an upright piano around with them. Holy crap. Yeah, right? Like that's that's like dedication, right? Yeah. And, and it wasn't just any piano. I mean, like these dudes are like jumping off the top of the piano, the piano in the middle of the stage, you know, and they're like, you're know, like, uh. dude, like dancing on top of their piano. I mean, like it's just like super high energy. They're crazy poor roadie. <laughs> no, they don't have a roadie. They do it all themselves. This is all done by themselves. They, they, uh, you know, the drummer Larry. He's he's like, he'll he'll do drop and do forty pushups and then like go and like lift the piano into this band. Like these these guys are super hardcore, man. Yeah, for real. <laughs> Yeah, Philly has a type. Philly definitely yeah, has a yeah, type that yeah, it pops out. Yeah, totally. It's like it's pretty. It's pretty insane. Those guys, but um, yeah, they're they're pretty talented guys. I, and uh, they're like you know they're like brothers to me now. So uh, nice. gotta go check them out. I, I'm sure you you'll get a chance to see them. Yeah, I live like a stone's throw from Philly. Uh, I'm in Allentown, Pennsylvania now. So oh yeah, yeah, uh, Allentown. Yeah, that's that's special up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's its own special brand. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. Something. Totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a steel town that's that's on the upswing, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. No, no. Like uh, I I know all about steel towns because like Ohio's loaded with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like the same difference, you know. It's a but it's a different. It's different than like a manufacturing town, right? Right. You know, right. it's much different than a manufacturing town. You know, like steel towns, like they make steel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they manufacture well, steel. Well, all those kinds of factory cities and stuff. It seems to attract a lot of musicians. Yeah. Well, you know, in Toledo, like there's there's really two options that you had. Like one was. You worked at a hospital, and the other one was you worked at a factory. And, you know, like, I worked at my dad's machine shop for about six months, and it was like, I mean, I did it 
because his machine shop needed some help and I had like work third shifts kind of like get stuff in order and you know blah 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 but I don't I there's no way I wanted to do that the rest of my life <laughs> yeah you know so like I, it was like I worked in the hospital and I just went to school so and I, th- I thought that was like my way out you know it, it ended up being my way out so yeah, I didn't yeah. end up working the factory you know so you're a doctor, yeah. specifically a mental health specialist. Uh-huh. How did you have time to do that and music and work? How did you find the time to do all that? Well, <laughs> you know, like up until I got into medical school, which was like 1998, I was just like hanging out and playing music and going to school, you know, and that's just like all there was to do, you know, that's how you stay out. Of, that's how I stayed out of trouble. Was I just went to school and I could, no matter how bad I would screw something up in my life, I never screwed up at school. Yeah. It was amazing. I've never, yeah, like I never had any problems with school. It was always like my life could be like falling apart around me, but I'd still be getting A's. You know, yeah. So, but I, you know, I like so I just had to work at the hospital, and I got good grades. And it took me five years to get into medical school because it was really competitive. And even though I had like you know really perfect GPA, blah blah blah, I had to like do a lot of crazy volunteering and stuff, and I had to do a lot of extra work to get into medical school. But whatever. And I was just playing music the whole time, and then I got into medical school, and Ben and I, we'd still, we'd still play music, you know, and when I, John Sinclair got us a, um, we put, we ended up opening up for John Sinclair, and then backing him up through the whole, his whole set in Cleveland, and then we just became really good friends with John Sinclair, and he wrote the liner notes for our first record, I was in med school, and that got released, and um, now that's John Sinclair, like the like John Lennon, John Sinclair. Did, did he ever yeah, have any Beatles, yeah. any John John or Yoko stories for you? Or no, no, I never really pressed him on any stories. We mostly just talk about music. And, yeah, you know, like I hung out with him. Um, it wasn't Y2K. It was like uh, maybe like 2000 and one or in 2002 for like New Year's down in New Orleans and he started to tell stories you know like MC5 stories but I mean we never really pressed him on that stuff so yeah he, he wants to talk about he wants to talk about like cool stuff that old blues musicians did or you know like yeah like who or what the lot what the best lineup was for a particular you know artist you know like career you know right he wants to like you know talk about music Sure. Like he's, he's a good dude. That's awesome. Yeah. And then so he wrote our liner notes and he invited us down to Mardi Gras. And so Ben and I drove down to Mardi Gras while I was in med school. Like, and that was like, you know, like vacation time for me. So I come to Mardi Gras and we played and we backed up John Sinclair and some shows down there. Damn. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah totally, <laughs> right? And then he like writes our liner notes for us. And, you know, it was like, like instant validation, right? Like, like <laughs> you can't get any cooler than that, you know. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's like pretty flattering, you know. It's like, like wow, uh, that dude knows a lot about music, and he just like volunteered to write our liner notes for us, and you know, and that's like, your spring break was, <laughs> was yeah, <doing> the- <laughs> yeah, totally. It was my spring break. We went down to Mardi Gras, and like basically. We were going to sleep in a van, but we just like met some people in a bar and they like, they're like, no, come to our house. We're musicians too. You can come over and hang with us. 
<laughs> we just like played music and drank for like four days straight. We had like a couple gigs there too, so that sounds um, like a syrupy mixture right there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It was, it was, there was some crazy shit going on. It was good fun. Yeah. So and Brian, it, like that was really like the first weekend that uh, we, you know, we we like really like hung out seriously with Brian Olive, and you know, he was like one of the musicians who was just like, you know would stay up like two days with you like just playing music like straight through you know like just not stop non-stop you know yeah yeah he's he's, like all about playing music all the time it's like legit with him so i mean it sounds like that was before he was in soledad brothers so we were just like hanging out and partying and playing music you know well tell us a little about that about that first soledad brothers single on italy how did you and i mean did dave buick approach you to record it how did, yeah how did yeah yeah, yeah yeah he like he approached us he just asked us if we wanted to do it i mean we kind of knew him from around like uh he was like much better friends with jack at the time yeah but i mean you know dave now is like family you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd do anything for that dude. <laughs> was he in the go when you met him, or is that post go? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, he was in the go, and um, it was like Bobby played guitar and Johnny Crowder played guitar and Dave right. played bass, and then Jack joined the go, and uh, Bobby just just sang. But I, to be honest with you, I I always liked the go best when Bobby played guitar. Yeah, he's got a, a real nice uh, rhythm style, you know. Very uh, T Rex. Very yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. He's he's a talented guy, you know, and yeah. been a really nice guy too. So yeah, in learning about his taste, I think James and I found that we share an extremely similar taste to Bobby Harlow, particularly in yeah, like yeah. the Beatle department and and the other stuff he was into. Sounds like the kind of thing we really like and I think that's why we dug those records so much and you know Jack was a nice little bolt of energy into that band but I think independent of Jack they also functioned you know really oh yeah those songs were all there a long time Jack was in that band yeah but Jack was uh you know Jack is Jack so (laughs) you can play a lead like He's a lead player, you know? Well, there's a there's a segue. Now, you, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, one of the most fascinating things in learning about your story was this story we have heard that you taught Jack the slide guitar. Is that... No, it's, 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 that was like something that was blown out of proportion. Okay. Okay. The, the real story was I was like uh, I taught I, I told I had a me interviewer that I taught Jack how to play in alternate tunings. Okay. And, and okay. they said, "Oh, what are alternate tunings?" I'm like, "Well, that's what you use when you play slide guitar." And so they they twisted it and they, uh, they, they do that. They twist like oh my god. Enemy yeah. is yeah. They do that. Yeah. 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 So like that got twisted and then I taught him how to play slide guitar. Yeah. Okay. But I did. I taught him how to play in alternate tunings, which is whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like just tech nerd, shit, you know. But um, nobody wants to listen to that. Yes, but that. Yeah. So that kind of got blown out of proportion. I. I Whatever. If that's what people say, that's what they say. Right. Like I think part of the impression, at least I get sometimes, of that era 
of music in that particular city is that it was a little like, you know, Mount Olympus or something where all these people are getting together and sharing everything and all these musical gods are sort of swirling. We teach each other, you know, oh yeah, I learned a lot of stuff from Jack and Jack learned a lot from me. Yeah. You know what I mean? We like got together and and experimented like recording all the time, you know, like we're putting microphones underneath the the, the porch. (laughs) (laughs) Some weird stuff. Playing snow shovel. (laughs) Put a weird on (laughs) man. Comes out, he's like, hold on a second. He goes back and he's like digging through his garage and he brings a snow shovel out and starts playing on the sidewalk. Wait, that's real? That's that's Yeah, that's on that Italy single. That's he's playing snow shovel on that. That is far oh out. Oh my god. Wow. Yeah, that, that, like uh, the B side is is uh playing snow shovel, yeah. yeah. True story. That's that's something else. That's um, a good that's a good that's a pr- perfect example of how things worked back then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we all of us are still like geeking out over gear and we none of us have, have changed. We're all the same kids <laughs> like, wanting to play music and have fun, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know if Dave Buick still has stacks and stacks of 45s just sitting in his house? Like, I feel like that's still a thing from Italy Records. Mm, I don't think so. I don't know. No, I think ours are completely gone. I don't think we can get I think our our repressing is sold out. So I, I still have a crate of originals pressing somewhere, though. Ooh. Between him and Ben Blackwell with Cass Records and Italy Records, just stacks of records in a closet. They want, they want you to they want you <laughs> they just, yeah, no, I don't, I don't know. We got actually, we got our record pressed up in uh, at Third Man in Detroit. So, uh, oh great, up and, like deal with with Buick and everybody up there at, at the Detroit Third Man. So. Has that been a? Has that was that a good experience? So we, we've we've known some. Oh, we, yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like a really yeah. tight operation. So like they said, you know, they're family. You know, it's like they just, you know, it's the same with the third man down in Nashville, you know, it's like there's people that have worked there for a really long time and they're like family, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not really affiliated with it in any way other than in, like my friends all work there, you know? <laughs> but I can't just like go there and do whatever the hell I want. <laughs> <laughs> there's actually, so there's actually a Soledad Brothers uh, recording from third man live. It's really good. Uh, yeah, I don't know if we'll put it out. We did a set for the um, launching of the balloon. Oh yeah, yeah, that got really that got really crazy and weird at the end. It was kind of fun. How'd you guys, you and Jack, meet? We were playing a show in Toledo, and our band was opening up for uh, no, not Cooper and the Peas, yeah, Two Star uh, Tabernacle, Two Star ta- Tabernacle, and. Uh, he said Jack was playing guitar and he said oh I didn't get to see your set but you guys are a two piece band and I said yeah uh, we're a two piece band as well and uh, we're playing up in Detroit next Monday or whatever it was and Jack showed up at that show and he said he had like a four track at his house and I wanted to stop by and maybe we could do some recording <laughs> and um, so yeah so we just like hung out and recorded is that the Johnny's Death Letter that you guys recorded? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, I mean, that's there's there's um some there's a bunch of that that recording stuff like floating around, but that's one of the tracks. Yeah. Oh, nice. um, my favorite one is there's a we're doing Little Red Rooster and a shotgun went off down the street. 
at like and it was like in time with the uh, <laughs> with the kick drum. It was, like, it's really loud, yeah. Yeah. I love Detroit. <laughs> special guest this week brandy st john brandy you are a stylist you design costumes you're a singer songwriter you've worked with jack on many an occasion in many a band not to mention a bunch of other musical artists Uh, it's a thrill to have you on the show thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me yeah you pretty much created the look of most of what me and paul have been uh, obsessed with uh, the, <laughs> the the albums and things. The wardrobe plays a huge part in that. So you've done amazing work, and uh, we we really 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 appreciate you talking with us today. Of course, thank you. One of the things I really like about working with Jack was that he always had a really kind of clear idea of what he wanted to do in terms of, you know, the look or the wardrobe or I would never want to work with someone that had like no sense of their own image or what they wanted. It would feel too much like a stylist who's like slapping an image on someone and and doing a makeover, which is really unappealing and like kind of like the icky part of Hollywood that I don't like. Mm -hmm. So I really like people that would have an idea, you know, a sort of like starting point, and then we would just sort of exchange, you know, like images or let the idea spark from there. That always made it, you know, really easy for us to kind of, you know, talk about and see where we would take an idea. Um, Your design influences, notably on uh, the Icky Thump cover with the suits in 2007, you guys did um, Get Behind Me Satan too. Yeah, that was the first thing I did was the Get Behind Me Satan album cover in 2005 in Detroit um, so that was a while ago <laughs> yeah <laughs> back a little ways yeah and uh, yeah so we did that and then we started on the tour wardrobe and yeah I mean we just had a lot of sort of common interests and tastes and worked well together and you know worked for like six years I guess yeah. after that on a lot of projects. One of the things I really love about Jack is that he's incredibly prolific, as everyone knows. Um, he has about like a thousand ideas a day, and they're all really great. Um, so we were always working on several things for a while there. Yeah, just a, a lot of really great, creative, fun projects that, looking back, were really amazing experiences. Yeah. Yeah, and then we did some raconteur stuff, I guess. Real quick, just to touch on the Get Behind Me Satan cover, when you costume for a uh, an album cover, are you on hand the day of the shoot to, like troubleshoot wardrobe problems or like sort of solve any mini crises that might pop up like what's your role on the day of you're there to make sure all the wardrobe is is looking its best and worn properly and pick the favorites you know i would make sure that they were ironed and looked good and and you're you know uh, facilitating all the changes yeah so i was always there we shot that in detroit at various locations um, and then there were people in it, you know, like the little twin girls. So just kind of making sure that they're all dressed and, and things like that, too. Um, yeah, so I was 
I was always there, which was amazing. Again, you might be able to answer a, a question me and Paul <laughs> have had for a long time about the Get Behind Me Satan cover. And if you can't answer, we understand. What is he holding? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, I honestly don't know. I don't think he has. I don't think he's ever told anyone. Um, nope. <laughs> we we know that Ben Blackwell knows, and we think he told Bruce Brand what it was when Bruce was, like, touching up the cover. But uh, we're not trying to get anybody in trouble. We're just dying to know what that thing yeah, is. Yeah. That's all, you know? <laughs> we haven't gotten a consensus. We've talked to at least four people who were there that day, and no one has given us uh, either the same answer or an answer. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we, and I know there are like theories, um, yeah. which I like. I like that there, you know, are, there are some theories. I think that's the mystery's nice. Yeah, I, yeah, and that's the other thing I really liked about Jack is that he understands that concept. He's kind of like a poet in that he understands how much to let the audience bring to a piece mm-hmm. of art, mm-hmm. and and how much. How much to show and how much to reveal, and I, a lot of artists don't understand the beauty in that, and how how much more fun it is for the audience member to be more actively engaged um, in bringing in their own ideas, interpretations. And he just yeah. is really great at that balance um, and keeping, like you said, people guessing for years and years. Like it's been like what 14 years and people are still want to know what that is and if he had told everyone right away no it would be like oh i don't even you know i don't even remember what that was but you still think about it 14 years later so that's pretty genius yeah me and paul were just uh pouring over the the tin type photos that are in the consolers of the lonely packaging with the lp um and i we were going over and finding little props details that we had never noticed before yeah it's a it's a fun little game of connect the dots that you can sometimes play with those and theorize what a wonderful wonderful transition James. <laughs> <laughs> um so we're talking on the show today a little bit about the raconteur's uh, sophomore release consoles of the lonely which you're credited i love this by the way you're credited with general garmentry and bewitchery yeah. so that's fantastic um Let's talk a little bit about the costuming for the cover shoot. Um, so there's like this kind of traveling medicine show, old timey sort of quality to the general aesthetic for the project. Was that a uh, a band decision? Was there any consulting with you in terms of like a particular era of the costumes? Like, can you give us a little bit of background as to how that assignment for Consoles of the Lonely grew? Yeah. Um so the photographer, I believe, was the first decision, right? So um, mm-hmm. it was Stephen Berkman, and I believe, I'm pretty sure, Jack had worked with him on Cold Mountain. Okay, that makes sense. Getting his tintype uh, shot for the promo of that film. Oh, that's right. And I don't, I don't know how it started, but we were both into, like, Victoriana, at the same time and like spirit photography and um and things like that so he was like oh this is great tintype photographer and then so Stephen came on board and then Stephen had a lot of very sort of specific ideas um and then it just sort of started from there like everyone you know has their like different sort of solo shot 
Um, and so then we were kind of like brainstorming of like what those would each be. Um, and I, like, I'm pretty sure they all chose, you know, what they wanted their solo shot to be. But there was one that changed last minute, and that was LJ, which is Jack Lawrence. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, uh, a milkman, and um, which would have been amazing. And I had this really great milkman costume for him, but um, it wasn't period accurate because it wasn't, okay. you know, from the 1860s. And Stephen was really a purist about the Victorian era, so. Um, and I was much more interested in sort of dipping around time periods and creating something new. Right. So we went with something else, but um, okay. But yeah, uh, that was sort of the one uh, change that we didn't do. We noticed uh, a lot of 30s, like 1930s stuff was working its way in, but yeah, it never went as far as the 50s. I mean, the, the closest you get is with... Um, Patrick Keeler in the with the motorcycle, but yeah, yeah, that was a really great shot. Um, yeah, and there's like a little—I don't know if you can see it—but there's like a little um, seahorse in that shot. There is, yeah, <laughs> and it's a real—it's a real. Um, so there's taxidermy in all four shots. <laughs> yeah, it's a little taxidermied seahorse that we got. Um, in Los Angeles, uh, one day. Oh, that is beautiful! It's so good. Yeah, wow. yeah. It's on. It's on the helmet. Oh, that's that's what's on there. Yeah. Okay. For Jack's photo, I, I mean, I can tell you like a little behind the scenes secret on this one, um, just because it has to do with me, so I feel more comfortable divulging it. Okay. So there's a skeleton in the photo of Jack, his solo um, shot. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually holding that skeleton. Whoa! And oh. um, and it was a it was a tintype photography trick that literally makes me disappear, and you don't see me in the shot at all. <laughs> um, That's but, so like, cool. It wow. is. It is really amazing because you really don't see me at all. We literally needed someone to hold this skeleton to make it look like it was, you know, it, it's a real skeleton that Jack has. So not, I don't know that it's actually like yeah. real human bones, but it's the kind that you use in like anatomy class. So we'll, we'll leave that open to uh, <laughs> yeah. interpretation. I don't think it was, but it was very heavy. Um, so <laughs> Stephen, so I'm standing on a box and I'm holding it to make it look like it's reaching for Jack. So crazy. And I was wearing all black. Stephen said, you have uh -huh. to be wearing all black because the way that tintype photography works is you'll disappear because something in, front of you is white and it's just going to focus in on the white the skeleton right so but we were both sort of like oh there's no way i'm going to totally disappear um uh, so i'm wearing all black and i had to like put my head down and i think i was probably wearing a bonnet because um i yeah. just wore them on set a lot at that time i was going through a pretty heavy bonnet face and um, <laughs> One does. i'm still in mine actually yeah and so i would just wear them on set because uh for sun protection mostly um sure. being an uber pale goth mm -hmm. and so i would just put my head down and uh when he would take the shot and then he would say okay now run out of the shot because the exposure was really long it was like a 20 second exposure for a tintype so he'd say run out of the shot 
and then it'll, you know, basically take a plate without you there. Um, and then through the wonders of tintype photography, um, the picture came out and you literally don't see me in any way. You just see the skeleton. Um, so that's kind of like the biggest, you know, magic trick of the day that I, uh, that I really like to sort of look back on because we're like, Oh, you know, you're probably going to see my outline at least. And you really don't like, I'm just not there at all. You did some great costume work for the Die by the Drop music video during the Sea of Cowards photo shoots and things. This seems like, uh, I, I, Paul put it here, uh, the have fun type of project, which <laughs> it's, that has, has to have been a blast to have taken part of because those costumes are wild. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were, like, every project was really fun like that because it was really talented and creative people all getting together and throwing out ideas and being inspired by each other's ideas and then trying something and then being inspired to try something else. So, you know, always being there on on the shoot day was really important for that as well um, to kind of just bring ideas. So that really was, like, Floria Sigismondi is the photographer and director who directed the video and shot the album cover and she's incredibly talented and she and I like really connected because we're super goth and um <laughs> so I met with her at her house in LA and showed her some of the pieces that I had found and she was really excited and she had you know a lot of sort of images of what she wanted to do for the day that she had shared with everyone and so we all sort of went in kind of knowing that we wanted it, like, I was really interested in this idea of different time periods and different areas of the world and what darkness looked like in those different time periods and different areas of the world. And I really like things that are so eclectic that pull from so many different resources that they become their own new thing Mm -hmm. and so i wanted to have a lot of different elements from different places and time periods and meld them together and create something sort of new that you sort of recognized but didn't recognize but it also sort of created a feeling of like darkness sure sometimes there's like an aztec-y kind of vibe but sometimes there's like a victorian sort of vibe but then sometimes there's like a Toulouse-Lautrec French <laughs> kind of vibe and it sort of blends yeah. all into this extremely creepy ghostly package That Die by the Drop video and an album cover. I, it's 
I think it's my favorite of Jack's music videos just because it's so beautifully orchestrated just on every level. So kudos to you for that. It's a really amazing job. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a lot of like Maya Darren influence, who's a really okay. old filmmaker um, that, that made this sort of surreal film. Floria sort of brought that influence in. And then I was like re- really interested in like this sort of like druid, but also like dark priest and um, voodoo priest sort of imagery. Mm. And then there's a lot of like really drapey, sheer sort of fabrics on Allison. And then just like the way that the light and smoke is playing and then the the like lights in their mouths and yeah, just like the tricks of the makeup and things like that. So everyone just got to really think about what interesting things we could do with this sort of idea of like darkness throughout time and, and different places. And it was really fun. And then, but there's, there's also some humor there too. Um, I think the, al- oh, yeah. the album cover, especially Dean's wearing a sort of like silver <laughs> metallic jumpsuit. Um, right. <laughs> and, and that again, it, it was always, there was always a lot of really fun energy on set of like, Oh, I'll put this on. This is so weird. You know? Yeah, those, those are some of my favorite images in my portfolio because it really was just, let's just do some really visually interesting things. And I got to mix a lot of like textures and like different fabrics, which to me creates a lot of visual interest. Yeah. And it was all, you know, we all had such a similar aesthetic that it, it just really worked so well. Yeah. Dead Weather almost comes with kind of a built-in, like a lot of these bands that you worked with with, Jack, White Stripes, Raconteurs, Dead Weather, you kind of ran the, the gamut of his later career. They all had kind of a built-in idea or theme or aesthetic that I guess you could hook into and, and make something out of. But for Jack's solo years, there wasn't really a predefined sort of look for that, maybe at least right away. You were responsible for styling him for some of It Might Get Loud and for the photo shoots for the Rome soundtrack. So that's sort of his earliest kind of forays into being a solo artist. Was there an aesthetic that you, or that you and he crafted for that? Was there a, uh, a North Star in terms of the direction of the style? I mean, not necessarily. I think Jack, from long before I met him, was very drawn to suiting and sort of classic old bluesman style. Um, mm. So... At some point he, you know, when he'd lived in Nashville for a while, we started making clothing for him that was sort of like a Southern dandy thing. And that, you know, that idea obviously originated with him as they all did. Um, So I think that's kind of where it might get loud came from the sort of like old bluesman thing that he'd always had. A lot of the overalls, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and then, or the, you mean the suspenders? Suspenders, thank you. Yeah.
then for Rome, I remember I saw a picture of Errol Flynn. Um, <laughs> we were always like really inspired by film um, and old films and old actors and, and things like that. I mean, one of the things that I think one of the reasons why I don't really consider myself a stylist is because I, you know, I don't really care about fashion. Um, I care about interesting concepts and the way that, you know, something's communicated through wardrobe. Mm. Um, so my influences have always been like film and really iconic rock stars like David Bowie or something like that. So we would always sort of like pass images back and forth of, you know, like old films and just really cool old photos that we'd seen. And so something about Errol Flynn came up around that time. And so then I think maybe that was sort of a starting point but um you know everything always evolved from a starting point to whatever it was meant to be Mm -hmm. but yeah i mean i i certainly can't say that i would take any credit for the way his sort of image ever evolved um like i said he was he always had a pretty clear idea of like what he wanted and then it was just about like well how can we make this as cool as possible you know as interesting and unique and as special as possible like i said i, I wouldn't want to work with someone that was just like here i am put something cool on me <laughs> you know like that's not very interesting yeah it's a collaboration yeah yeah um the most interesting projects i've always worked on have been really really collaborative and people that have really pretty good ideas of what they want and then we just go about making it really really great Welcome, Jared Green of the Howland Brothers. Jared, how's it going? It's going good. It's good to be with you guys. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. I'm very happy this all was able to come together, and uh, we're just we're thrilled to be able to talk to you. Love the music. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Yes, and you are quite the musician. You are a multi instrumentalist, guitar and harmonica and bass and vocals. And do you want to do you want to tell us a little bit about well, firstly uh, about you and your music and uh, how you got together with uh, with your group, the Howland Brothers? Sure. Yeah, the Howland Brothers uh, were Nashville based. I guess we've been down in Nashville since 2005, and uh, I met the original members. Well, the original member and I, we moved down to Nashville in yeah, 2005. But um, the trio, as you all might know us, uh, the trio that was with Brendan Benson on Ready Made Records, that was Ben Plass on bass and Ian Kraft on um, fiddle, banjo, mandolin. We all met up in Ithaca, New York. We were attending Ithaca College. We were in the music school mm-hmm. and uh, became fast friends. Ben and I were actually the same major. We were recording majors. We studied with the classical guitar teacher. And then oh, wow. uh, Ian and I became friends probably about 2003. Uh, I ended up recording his... He had a steel pan band. Mm-hmm. I ended up recording with him. And we played in a, a bar band together and oh, nice. uh, became good friends. He got me into singing folk music and country music. In that bar band, we played some Old and In The Way and, and Willie Nelson. Yeah. Anyways, we met up in Ithaca, New York, in college. 
we finished college and we had we actually had a bluegrassy old time band up there for about a year. It was a lot of fun, and we thought, man, mm-hmm. this this is the kind of music we enjoyed playing. We didn't you know didn't really want to do classical or jazz or or just be in a bar band. Didn't really know what we wanted to do, but what we were doing with the that five piece bluegrassy old time string band that was a lot of fun. So we finished school, and Ian and I moved to Nashville together, just kind of you know not knowing anybody, just knowing it was. A hot spot to be. Mm-hmm. Moved down in 2005. Ben Plass, uh, who eventually played bass with us, I don't know when, about 2010 or 11, I think 2011, right before we met mm-hmm. Brendan. Uh, he, he had moved down to Nashville and was bass there as well. But um, yeah, we, we've had a few different bass players over the years, but it's, it's always been Ian Kraft and, and myself. In nice. the Brothers. So, so you guys, so you guys journeyed down there in 2005. That's right around the time that Jack and Brendan kind of made their trek down there too. That must have been a real golden time for like the the influx of talent into that town. I mean, obviously, it it had been you know Nashville's a town that's been thriving for uh, you know a hundred years or whatever. But I feel like at your particular juncture when you got down there. It was a particularly hopping place. Yeah, I loved it when we, when we moved down here. And, you know, there really wasn't too many people, but all the friends we made and the musicians we met, they were uh, just really great people. Mm-hmm. I felt like the town was small and, and we were all younger. So uh, all we had to do was go check out music and meet people and, and go to parties and, and get better at what we were doing learn and, and write music it was a it was a great time nice so you start the band that the howland brothers and you did meet brendan benson at some point who produced two of your albums howland trouble how did how did that collaboration begin yeah we we had met brendan i think in 2012 one of our mutual friends buddy jackson who's a, a great artist in town he would throw these parties and a lot of musicians would come over and we'd mainly played old time music but that's where we first met him and through Buddy, uh, we were recommended as um, basically extra musicians for a recording session uh, for Corey Chisel, who was, uh, mm. I think, one of his first oh, yeah. artists yeah. he produced fellow, for Ready Made Records. Yeah, fellow, I was going to say, fellow Ready Made uh, Record. Yeah. Label, yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of our first uh, real introduction or, or chance to hang out with Brendan, other than meeting him at the party, was, was working with him, trying to... Uh, you know, add to each song that was being recorded. Mm-hmm. So, d- did you guys hit it off right away? Was what was the uh, common ground for talk? Because, because uh, y- you know, I think Brendan from being from Detroit, you know, a lot of his natural inclinations, particularly as a as a musician, uh, sort of lean a little more into the kind of alternative or the rock uh, kind of realm. But <clears throat> it seemed like there was a lot of dabbling in country for from non country artists. Not that your guys are, I, w- I would say specifically country. It's more of like a sort of a blues bluegrass fusion or something like that but uh what what was the common musicality between you guys did he respond to your sound right away yeah i don't i think we just became good friends because uh we were easy to get along with we were good enough musicians to uh you know play good banjo or or guitar in the studio and uh, but also at that party and and after that recording session um i think what (laughs) what we had in common was uh we really liked old time music, and he particularly liked the wash tub bass. I don't think he'd ever seen something like that before. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. I love that idea that Brendan's a secret wash tub bass fanatic. That's amazing. <laughs> and, uh, said, oh yeah, we do that sometimes at our shows, or at least at parties. 
But uh, you know, that's in a way that's kind of an alternative thing. And and he's he's actually very good uh, on Trouble. He he recorded. Um, he's playing washed up bass on one of those tracks. Oh, nice! But wow, that's yeah. Awesome. So so we you know we kind of met through that recording session for Corey Chisel, and um, mm-hmm. yeah. And he knew we we worked a lot in town. We were at that time we were playing about five shows a week, you know, all the same places Wednesday through Sunday. But uh, you know, we were like, yeah, we've been working we've been working a lot in Nashville, and and we love it. And we gave him a couple of our albums, and uh, I think he you know he was all pumped up about uh, getting in the studio working with people. And so I think before Corey was done, he said, uh, next album I want to do or work on is for y'all if you're interested. And so it came pretty quick, nice. and we we're that's yeah. That was our, you know, yeah. it was our first offer for uh, basically a record, a record deal, or or having someone produce an album for us. Yeah, so, um, yeah. That's how we met through that recording session, and then and then uh, and then we got to work with him. The the album you worked on with Corey was, I believe, Old Believers, and you had mentioned that you had done some albums previous to to this work. Was it any different than than working with uh, in the studio with with Brendan and Corey? Oh yeah, I mean all of our other albums we've done on our own time on our own budget. So we 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 did uh, at least two albums, I think three. Before that, we had saved up money, went into a place that was, you know, affordable, an hourly rate, and didn't record them like within one week's time. We recorded them over the course of like half a year or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we did an album called uh, Tragic Mountain Songs, Long Hard Year, and then Baker Street Blues. And then uh, I think we met Brendan about 2011, 2012. We made Howl, and then it didn't, mm-hmm. it didn't even come out till 2013. But um, 2013 was a both those years that was a lot of fun and uh he had a an album come out around then yeah he had a couple in that time frame he had what kind of world and um, yeah it was different because you know it's it's us saying okay yeah that's good enough i think that's good it's great do we need to overdub more i don't know maybe (laughs) but um you know you don't have like someone who's uh putting up the money to do it and wanting to put their name on it so uh other than us, so yeah, it was, it was a totally different experience. But uh, it was it was very fun working with Brendan. He's really a great guy. Yeah, his his musical instincts are so they they lean in such a, a similar direction to James and mine that we we find his music kind of like a I don't know sort of like this warm blanket or something. But uh, there's a touch of the familiar, but there's he's also pushing new new boundaries. Uh, do you recall a time in the studio where he pushed you in a direction that you thought you would not have gotten to <clears throat> without him? Kind of guiding you there or was it more like like what you're saying is more of like a uh he's he's simply directing what you guys were already doing yeah i mean uh the first album in particular we had i think 10 days blocked out and uh 20 songs to work on yeah i remember a couple of those songs we we did them several times like big time was not a two-take deal it was we did that song at least probably eight or ten times And uh, <laughs> a song right after that, Herm- Hermitage Hot Step, that took quite a few times. By the time we actually did it, I think uh, Ben, who sang lead on it, you know, his voice was going hoarse. And <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, he's all about, yeah, y'all, you can keep doing it. You know, you can, 
you got it. He's very motivating, or but he's also honest. Like uh, you know, we do however many takes, and um, you know that's what's good about having a producer. Is you might not think it's great, but you know they're listening to it all the way through, and they're saying, "No, that was awesome," or yeah, "That was a real mm-hmm. honest performance." And um, so yeah, it was uh, you know our first time working with a producer, and, and he was great. I've got a lot of great stories and a lot of good songs from working with him. Yeah, one of my favorites on that, I had a, actually a question about Mama, Don't You Tell Me, the the last track on the album. Did I hear, is that Lily Mae Rishi in there, or is that somebody who sounds yeah, remarkably that's, like that's her? Lily, yeah, Lily Mae Rishi, uh, Frank Rishi, All right. and, and All her right. sister, Grace. <laughs> okay, great. Which, uh, great. We've been friends with them since we moved to Nashville. They were, they were the very first band we saw playing down on Broadway. Which uh, oh, wow. one of the reasons when they were gypsy, we, we loved that town. <laughs> wow, yeah. this is going on at four o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon, and then we found out they play there five <laughs> days a week. We can do this tomorrow and the next day. So, yeah, uh, we love we love Lily's Lily May's stuff. I mean, I I got familiar with. But James and I both got familiar with uh, even their, their her gypsy work. Uh, but like her her stuff before she kind of even was a functioning adult was still very good so it was uh it was nice to hear her on i thought that was her and i thought i i thought i heard a sousson of brendan benson maybe vocalizing in there too but yeah i could be wrong about that yeah so it was all that all all a good memory good experience nice can you uh can you tell us a little bit about what your experience with with ready-made records was um i know brendan was trying to get his whole record company basically off the ground he had a lot of big ideas was he working as a booking agent for you guys as well like how did working with ready-made go oh i think it was interesting i think it was maybe a learning experience for everybody i mean i don't know how many people were on ready-made brendan uh young hines Corey, a few others you know they were brand new spent money in good ways like uh, they paid for i think two years of publicity for us which wow. you know, publicity is kind of everything and the if people know about you or not that was good yeah i mean ready-made was good there was um like i said 2012 or 2013 brendan had an album out then he toured a little bit and we kind of went as a package deal uh, uh young hines and uh, the Howland Brothers and Brendan. We did yeah. we did at least three trips together, I think. We went to um, New York, Los Angeles, <laughs> San Diego, to Seattle, and then we went up to Chicago and the Twin Cities. Oh my god. Yeah. So we I think and down to, I think we were we were at that New York show. Oh, all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If it, if it's twenty twelve, we James and I were definitely there. Yeah, the Bower that, that's awesome. Bowery Ballroom, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what, yeah. <clears throat> hey, you guys were great. <laughs> All right, <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a killer memory. So to me, that was the that was the highlight of of, of Ready Made was getting to do some shows with Brendan. <laughs> yeah, and then um, you know also getting to make some pretty awesome albums, and then uh, yeah, you know get get the word out, which 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 helps. Nice. It, it allows you to tour, you know, more successfully. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I mean speaking of places that you got to tour at you you guys played at the the ryman auditorium for uh, brendan's lynch foundation benefit in 2013 with people like jacob dylan and jack white how was how was that show that must have been something else because yeah. <laughs> that's, oh, that's really uh, cool. quite the was, green room especially cool because we, we got to actually open the show so we got to do more than just one or two songs i think we got to play a half hour um, yeah 
Yeah, I saw I saw in your notes you're wondering about the green room. You know, the Ryman it has has many green rooms. So like those bigger yeah. names, they had their own green room. We didn't didn't necessarily meet Jacob Dylan or Jack White on that on that night. But um, all the kind of uh, more familiar ready-made artists, the ones that played with Brendan or with Corey Chisel and Young Hines, we mm-hmm. were all we were all hanging out in the the one big green room. And yeah, it was a, it was like a uh, a party. It was we're like yeah, this is awesome. We're here. <laughs> we're all pumped nice. up to do this. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, we'd be hanging out, cheering each other on in between songs. So yeah, it was that's awesome. It was great. I mean, and that, and the the Ryman wasn't the only kind of awesome historic Tennessee location. We I, there's some clips online of you guys at uh, the Sun, Sun Studio. Uh, what was it like playing there? That must have been that must have boggled boggled ones. Mi- I can only imagine it would have boggled it would have boggled my mind. How about that? I, I'll inherit the boggling for this. But were you boggled by it? Were you boggled? <laughs> There's a lot of boggling going on. Well, I don't know. We did the tour. It was the end of the day. They said they were going to film. We were going to record some songs. There's going to be a camera crew in there. So we were just kind of like, okay, let's see what happens. And the engineer gave us the tour. And then started setting up stuff, and we were like, okay, let's do this. This will be cool. Showed us how, how they used to record some sessions, like where the bass player would stand. Yeah, Bill Black. How, how, would, yeah, <laughs> how, how they would get the, uh, the vocal placement and stuff. And it was, it, was, it was really cool. It was, I don't know, mind-boggling. It was probably more inspiring. <laughs> There's pictures on the walls of all the great artists that played there. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I don't think we thought much more of it, other than that there's three cameras in our in our face. So we were just trying to <laughs> <laughs> trying to keep that cool, I guess. Yeah. I get the low down Tennessee blue. Mama, last time you rode, you rocked me to the ground. The only song I ever sing is that low down Tennessee blue. Now that that was uh, that was fun too. Kind of didn't know what to expect of it, and came out pretty good. Nice. For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search the Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. I'm Paul Kaminsky. I'm James Kaminsky. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. And we bring you the Kaminsky family of podcasts Yesterday and Today and The Third Men Podcast. You might know me from one of those dumb voices I do, or my dad (laughs) from his better show than ours. (laughs) Wow. And we're here to tell you about some cool merchandise you can pick up for the shows. As we mentioned in each episode, we do not in any way profit from these shows whatsoever, but to break even on some expenses, we have put up some cool merch that you can pick up to help support the show. Yes, some fun apparel, things you can put on yourself. Are we going to be selling Marks and Spence underwear? <laughs> Don't worry, we will. <laughs> you can head to our social media pages, that's facebook.com slash yesterdayandtodaypodcast or facebook.com slash thirdmen, or you could head to society Six 
facebook.com slash Kaminsky Family Podcast. That's society, the number six, dot com slash K-A-M-I-N-S-K-I Family Podcasts. Yeah, keep our lights on. I'm in the dark. Dad, any words of wisdom? Hello? The lights just went out. (laughs) Guys, we need your help. (laughs) Buy stuff. Perhaps a coffee mug that you can enjoy a beverage out of while listening to our shows. And if you haven't got yours, please send forth in and get a free one. All right. Thank you, Dad. All right, we'll see you on the podcast, folks. Bye. It's audio. You can't see me. Thank you.